pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now, humbly opening up your word and looking to hear from you, from your word today. Lord, as we walk through this text, help our, our eyes to see, our, our ears to hear, our minds to comprehend the truths that you have before us. For those who are familiar with this passage, Lord, may we, we not look over it as just something that we've heard before. For those of us who have never heard these truths, Lord, I pray that we will not find them too complex to understand. I pray that you will be the one that we rely on and that you will be the one who is glorified through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you take your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians. Have a, a little of a recap here. The, uh, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the churches in the, the region of Galatia. That's modern-day Turkey. Uh, churches that he helped start on his very first missionary journey. Remember, Paul suffering from a, a bodily ailment, preached the gospel, and, and by God's grace, he saw men and women through the different cities of Galatia come to faith in Christ, or at least that's what Paul thought. Um, see, when Paul left Galatia, he had every reason to, to believe that though young in the faith, that there were these men and women, these Galatians were now brothers and, and sisters in, in Christ. But now Paul's in a spot where he, he's just not so sure. And we've got to ask why. Why is Paul not so sure about their salvation? Well, because after Paul left, false teachers from Jerusalem, known as Judaizers, made their way into Galatia. And they began teaching, hey, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but... If you Gentiles really want to become the children of Abraham, if you want to become children of God, well, then you have to become Jewish. You've got to be circumcised. You have to obey the Jewish laws. You have to obey the Jewish traditions, to which Paul's response was an adamant, like, no, absolutely not. Why? Because Paul said that's the path to slavery, not the path to freedom. So Paul writes this letter to persuade the Galatians not to follow the Judaizers down the path to slavery, but rather to be free, to be free in Christ, to, to live free, which, which is the same thing I desire for each and every one of you today. To be free in Christ, yes, but to also live your lives in light of the freedom that you have in Christ. And that's what brings us to chapter 4, verse 21, and Paul's question. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. 
for she is slavery with her son. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So we're thinking about our freedom. We're people, we're a country who prides ourselves on our freedom. We're the land of the free. We, we like to, to boast about the freedoms that we have as a people. But as it pertains to this text, what we need to ask is the question, whose child am I? Whose child am I? Specifically, am I a child of Hagar or am I a child of Sarah. Now, that's probably not the question that you rolled in here this morning thinking that you're going to have to answer. Like, am I a child of Hagar or am I a child of Sarah? Some of you may even be like, who in the world is Hagar and who in the world is Sarah? And if that's you this morning, that's okay. That's okay. No worries because we're going to get to that. But here's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to kind of follow along in Paul's outline of this text. We're we're first going to look at the, the question in verse 21. And then we're going to see the historical context that he has in verses 22 and 23. And then we're going to follow that with verses 24 through 27 where he says, hey, this can be interpreted allegorically. And then after that, we're going to take the practical application that Paul sets forth in verses 28 through 31. So just walking through what Paul has clearly laid out for us in what otherwise is a very difficult uh, text, if we're just going to be honest. And hopefully by the time that we're, we're done, you'll not only understand, understand who Hagar and Sarah are, you'll understand why it matters both to you and to your, your freedom. So first, Paul's question. In verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, that is, those who desire to be Jewish. Tell me, you who desire to be Jewish, do you not listen to the law? Paul's asking, do you not listen to the, the scriptures? The, the law here referring not only to the Ten Commandments, not only a, a summary of the law, but also the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, 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 the law. But why would Paul be asking this question? Do you not listen to the law? Well, because he's about to attack the argument of the false teachers head on by taking them back to the law. He's going to take them back to Genesis, which brings us to the historical background in verses 22 through 23. Let's read those again. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, if this is all the information that you have, 
and, and you're not familiar with the background of this story and you're not bringing all the context into play when you're reading this, it could honestly leave you being like, um, yeah, like what in the world is going on here? It can be pretty hard to grasp everything that Paul's saying. That's one of the things that makes this text so difficult. So to give you the context, I want to have you follow along with me in the book of Genesis. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And again, if you're well-versed in the background, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. If you're not well-versed in the background here, turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, where we're going to trace the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar Together, starting from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 11, verse 29. All right, Genesis chapter 11, verse 29. This is where we find out that Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, he took a wife. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Her name will later be changed to Sarah. I will just go ahead and refer to them as Abraham and Sarah. But verse 30 there in chapter 11 telling us that Sarai was, was barren. She had no children. So she's unable to, to have children. Then Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God calls Abraham who at the time was a pagan Gentile, had no interest in following God, and he makes him a threefold promise. One, he promises to give, promises to give him a land. And then he promises to make of him a, a great nation. And that from him, that through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And remember, they can't have children on their own. What does Abraham do? He believes God and he packs up everything he has and he follows what God has said. He follows God's word in faith. So things are going really well at this point. But now, if Abraham is anything like us, he's probably thinking, man, I want some immediate results. Like, I don't want to wait a long time for these promises to come into play. And probably not thinking it's going to be a long time for these promises to come into play and be fulfilled. Not at all thinking it's going to take years. It's going to take decades in no way comprehending all the ups and the downs that he's going to have to go through while these promises are waiting to be fulfilled. But that's exactly what happens, which causes Abraham to, to do what? Well, have some doubts, have some questions like, um, God, I'm not really sure what you're doing here. Um, we can relate to this, right? He's like, I don't know, like, how long is this going to take? Like, time's a ticking here, like, biologically and, and everything else. Like, what's happening? And then telling God in chapter 15, verse 2, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar Damascus, like, not even his child. With Abraham and Sarah both getting older, and by older, I mean like impossibly old as it pertains to childbearing years. 
Abraham's wondering, again, like, how in the world are these promises going to be fulfilled? To which God responds in chapter 15, verse 4. This man, referring to the other relative, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. You ever tried that? Like to walk outside and try to number the stars, like one, two, three, like you lose count. Like, like, like that's all the fingers I got on my hand. Like, like there's just so many stars, especially when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're looking up, just so many stars. And he takes them out and says, try to count them. Number them if you are able to do so. <laughs> and then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What a promise, right? Like what a promise. And how did Abraham respond? It's either going to laugh or he's going to believe, right? And so which does he do? Verse 6, and he believed the Lord and he counted to him as righteousness. So this is God's covenant with with Abraham. It's God's promise that all of his promises are going to be fulfilled. Just give it time. Just give it time. That's the hard part, isn't it? Giving God time. Things don't make, move fast enough, don't happen on our timetable the way that we would like them to happen. And what happens? We get impatient. We get like nervous. We, we want to we try to force God's plans along in our own power and our own strength. That's when we finally come to chapter 16, where Abraham and Sarah are, are still childless. And Sarah's like, there's no way I can have children now. Like, impossible. There's got to be another way. So what does she do? Well, she comes up with a plan of her own to fulfill God's promise. Now, what, what of anything about that sounds smart? Nothing. Like, nothing. Just remember that, that, that nothing when we're tempted to do the same. Do the same trying to do things in our own power. It's not smart. But that's what happens here. Sarah encouraging her, her husband, Abraham, to take her Egyptian servant, Hagar, as a wife. Sarah's thought being, well, if I can't ha- give him a child, my servant will. And all of God's promises will be filled through that child. Now, again, does anything about that sound smart, like a good idea? Not at all. But Abraham goes along with the plan. Foolish, sinful man right there, right? Like, don't do this. You have every ability to say, no, this is not right. But he goes along with it anyway. But despite the foolishness, despite the sinfulness, Abraham and Hagar have a son, Ishmael. Hagar then looking upon Sarah with contempt as a result. Look what I was able to do. I was able to provide your husband with something that you never could. But now look at how Abraham, how old he is when all this happens. Chapter 16, verse 16. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now fast forward 13 years and look at chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I 
am God Almighty. And once again, promises Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But now with Ishmael being 13 years old and having him having no children with, with Sarah, Abraham's thinking, okay, all these promises are going to be fulfilled through Ishmael. Ishmael is going to be the answer to these promises. Why is Abraham thinking that? Because Abraham's 99 years old. That's why, he, why he's thinking that. But now look at verse 16 there in chapter 17. And God said to Abraham regarding Sarah, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her name and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And how did Abraham respond this time? falls down laughing. (laughs) Like there's no way, God, like how in the world, God, even telling God in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. He's telling God, my my plans will do, God. My my plans will do. We we got this. Let your promises be filled filled through Ishmael. I can't have an infant at 99 years old. Like, like I've already got a teenager. Like, I can't do this. But what's the Lord's response in verse 19? And God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God's very clear, not Ishmael, but Isaac. Now flip over to chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse one, where the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah just as he had promised And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a biological son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham named him Isaac, just as the Lord had told him. But now look at Ishmael's response. After Isaac was weaned, after Sarah had finished nursing him, Abraham threw a great feast, great celebration here. And look at verse nine. What does Sarah see? She sees Ishmael laughing. Not not laughing funny, ha ha, but laughing in a mocking way, mocking Isaac. And what did Sarah do? Verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir of my son, Isaac. So that's a summary of the historical account. It's a summary of the background of what's in our text today. It's a summary of verses 22 and 23. But now look what Paul says back in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So moving on to section two of our message today, the allegory, which in no way implies that what we just read are not actual events. They are actual events. It is factual history of what we just read. 
This isn't an allegorical work of fiction like Pilgrim's Progress. The story of Hagar and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac is a true story. So when Paul says this may be interpreted allegorically, he's saying that that this historical story reveals some deep, important spiritual truths that we need to understand, which is where we turn our attention now. Paul is saying in verse 24, these women are two covenants meaning they each represent a covenant that has been given by God. And since Paul starts with Hagar, let's start with Hagar. Hagar, as we're told, represents Mount Sinai. What covenant was given at Mount Sinai? The the law. So Hagar represents the the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant coming from Moses, the, the one that God gave to Moses. And there's nothing wrong with the Mosaic covenant. Nothing wrong with with the law. That is the law as God designed the law to be used. Nothing wrong with it as God designed it. Remember, the law is from God. It means it's good. But the purpose of the law was never to save. It never had the ability to, to, to save. Rather, its purpose was to point sinners to our need for salvation to show sinners that there's no amount of of good work or things that we can do to ever make us right before God. It reminds us that we are born slaves to sin. Every single one of us in this room, born slaves to sin. Thus Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar has always been a slave. And every child born to Hagar is born a what? A slave. But now notice the connection Paul makes in verse 25. She, Hagar, corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, what does Paul mean by she corresponds to present Jerusalem? Well, consider the context of Paul's letter. What do we see coming from present Jerusalem at the time of this letter? The Judaizers false teaching, persecution, legalism, a salvation by by works. You have to do these things in order to be right with God. Have to become Jewish in order to be a child of Abraham. You have to become Jewish in order to become a child of God. But you know what that belief system is? It's slavery. That's what Paul's saying. It's slavery. It's a man-made effort to achieve or earn the promises of God, just like we see with Hagar and Ishmael. Man-made effort to achieve the promises of God. In church, we're all guilty of it. Every one of us are guilty in some capacity, thinking somehow that God's feelings towards us or his, his favor towards us change, either good or, or bad, determined by the things that we do. Maybe we go and we, we do these things, God's going to be more happy with us. And, and if I do this, then God's feelings towards me are going to change in, in a negative way. But God's promises don't work that way, church. Freedom isn't found in the law. Our freedom is found where? In the grace of God. Our freedom is found in the grace of God. So now we turn our attention to Sarah. Sarah represents the promise she represents the covenant God made to Abraham that we read about, read about just a few moments ago. 
The child Sarah conceives doesn't come from human ingenuity, but from God. And yes, every, every, every baby, every life is a gift from God. Even, even Ishmael's life doesn't exist without God's hand being upon that. But beyond infertility, like I understand infertility. We, we understand infertility. Like some, are, are, some people are never able to have biological children. Just not. Unable. And some who have been told that they can never have children biologically, they end up actually having children biologically. And it's like totally the grace of God. We, we celebrate those miraculous gifts. But this situation goes beyond infertility. Like Sarah is past menopause here. Like long, long past childbearing years. She's in her 90s. So it's laughable here to think of a woman her age having a baby especially a first baby, and yet what does God do? He gives her Isaac. Now, clearly, he doesn't give her Isaac as a result of her obedience, does he? He doesn't say, man, look how obedient she's been. Oh, wow, look at her faithfulness. there's, There's nothing about Sarah or Abraham that deserves this child, is there? And there's nothing about Sarah or Abraham that can manufacture or make this child come into existence. Isaac is 100% the work of God. That's the point. That's the point. Same as salvation, which is why the covenant of Abraham is understood as the covenant of grace. There is nothing that we can do to merit or earn or to bring about our salvation. It is completely 100% the work of God's grace. So we look at Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and their story, and what does it scream out to us? It screams out God's grace. It's screaming grace from the Old Testament forward. They deserve nothing, can do nothing as it pertains to fulfilling God's promises. But God, you read Romans. And you read Romans 1, and you get into Romans 1, it's like, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. You move into Romans 2, and it's making like very clear there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. You move into Romans chapter 3, and you're continuing forward, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is a, for no one seeks after God. We're all sinful undeserving, deserving of God's wrath. And then we come to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now, but God, pointing us to the the grace of God, a reminder that even our our biggest screw-ups, we've all had some big ones along the way, I'm sure, they don't change the promises of God. Our biggest mess-ups don't change the promises of God. A reminder we will never be good enough to be able to earn the promises of God. It's by grace. Received how? Through faith. Church, how are we saved? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. But Paul's not done with his allegory just yet because not only does Paul highlight two covenants, but he also highlights two Jerusalems. You got present Jerusalem and Jerusalem above. Present Jerusalem, that's slavery. 
That, that, that's works-based righteousness. You sinner want to be a child of Abraham? You want to be a child of God? The present Jerusalem says, well, you have to do these things if, or if you want to be right with God. It's, it's legalism. It's Jesus plus. That's present Jerusalem. Man-made effort to earn God's favor. That path, church, is a path of slavery that only leads to death. But Jerusalem above is different. Jerusalem above is free. Now, let's be clear. In both situations, Paul's talking less about a location and more specifically about a people. Present Jerusalem, they're claiming to be God's people. They're claiming to be God's people by all that they do. They're claiming to be God's people by their ethnic heritage. But Jerusalem above are actually God's people. Jerusalem above is true and actual Israel. And who are God's people? The church. The church. Believers. Christians are God's people. So again, let's be clear, Paul's not speaking futuristically here. He's not talking about the the not yet, the things that we're waiting for in the end times. He's talking about the already. He's talking about the present reality. Jerusalem above equals the, the children of God, the church, Christians. And he's saying spiritual Jerusalem supersedes earthly Jerusalem in the plan of God. He's saying not all Israel are Israel. Being Jewish ethnically does not make someone a child of Abraham spiritually. You want to be a child of Abraham? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. See, Paul is using Sarah and Hagar to teach us the difference between spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. Try to justify yourself by what you do, Hagar. Justified by by grace through faith in Christ alone, Sarah. A truth that makes Paul rejoice in the grace of God. Just look at verse 27. Paul is quoting Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. There in Galatians verse 27, Paul saying, maybe even singing here, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are, are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul referring to, to both Sarah and Jerusalem as he quotes Isaiah here. Sarah obviously being the barren woman God blessed But when Isaiah originally wrote this, he didn't have Sarah on the forefront of his mind. Isaiah was writing in a particular context of his own. He was thinking of Jerusalem, and specifically of the Jerusalem that had been exiled, taken out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, and sent into exile, removed from the land. Look as though all of God's promises had been lost. All of God's promises had been forgotten. Yet the promise Isaiah is delivering to God's people in his passage is the one that God would establish a new Jerusalem. And don't miss this, church. God would establish a new Jerusalem. So a promise 
being made in Genesis, a promise being clung to in Isaiah, and as bleak as their circumstances in exile were during Isaiah's time, he's reminding that God has not forgotten his promises. And what Paul is highlighting here is the fulfillment of this promise. Not in a geopolitical nation of Israel being formed with physical borders, but in the people of God, the church, people from all the earth being redeemed. How? By God's grace. Remember the stars that Abraham couldn't even begin to count in Genesis chapter 15? You remember those stars? Can't even begin to number them? Yeah, well, Paul's telling us that they find their fulfillment in the people of every tribe and tongue and nation and language who are coming to faith in Christ. <laughs> like the promise is fulfilled, church, in the church. The promise is being fulfilled right now, not by works, but by grace. As the gospel is preached, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language are coming to faith in Christ. And in coming to faith in Christ, what family are they a part of? Are we a part of? We're children of Abraham. We're children of God, which brings us to Paul's last section of verses, his practical application. These are intended to do two things. One, serve as encouraging reminders to believers. Don't forget these things. Like This is who you are. Be encouraged, church. Don't forget, no matter how long the waiting process is, don't forget. As hard as it gets, as hard as the trials are, don't forget. This is who you are. But it's also serving as a warning. If you continue to listen to the false teachers, you can have no confidence that you are a child of God. So he's asking, whose child are you? Hagar's? Or Sarah's. Speaking of those who consider themselves Christians, you Christians, one, are children of promise. You Christians are children of promise. Actually, he says in verse 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But again, remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to Galatians. He's writing to Gentiles. And he's reminding them that if they are in Christ, they are already children of the promise, just like Isaac. They don't have to become Jewish to become what they already are, children of Abraham, children of God. He's saying, quit listening to the false teachers. Quit. Same is true for us today. If you're in Christ if you're trusting in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death, you are a child of Abraham. You are a child of God. You are Israel. Not in the flesh, not by works, but spiritually you are Israel. You belong to the family of God. That's your identity. No matter what anybody else around you says, that's your identity. Not just someday down the line, but right now, by God's grace, you are a child of God. And you have not received the spirit of slavery. You have received the spirit of adoption. The spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
The implication being what that Paul tells us from Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Which brings us to application number two. Verse 29, you Christians will experience persecution. So verse 29, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul referring here to how Ishmael persecuted Isaac. His mocking, his his jealousy, his hatred of, of Isaac. Paul equating it to the persecution the Galatians are experiencing from the Judaizers. Those who were born of the law, Ishmael, persecuting those who are born of the Spirit, born of grace, Isaac. Paul teaching the Galatians that it's always been this way. From the very beginning, Ishmael hated Isaac just as Hagar hated Sarah. Those who trust in salvation by works, trust in their performance, they hate those who believe and proclaim salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Christians who, who faithfully believe and, and proclaim the gospel will be persecuted. You can't be surprised by this church. We've seen it all throughout church history. And what is at the heart of persecution? Like, why does it exist? Well, the aim is to silence the witness of the gospel, which means persecution isn't relegated to just an act of violence. Paul definitely experienced violence. We saw last week how John the Baptist experienced violence for speaking the truth. But what type of persecution are the Galatians experiencing? It could be violence. could be strong social and political pressure to believe differently. All of which we can surely expect in some form or fashion in the years to come. But at the heart of the persecution is false teaching. It's the temptation to believe a, a false gospel to listen to the serpent in the garden when he said, did, did God really say? It's deception that can lead even the strongest believers astray and silence the gospel witness by putting forth a false gospel, which results in what? It results in slavery. That's what false religion does. It enslaves, whether it's Judaism or Hinduism or Islam or, or Mormonism, even much of what's called Christian today is nothing more than slavery. See, false religion is all about what we do. It's all about our experience, making us feel good about ourselves. It's all about our performance. It's all about our works. And it fails to point us to Christ and what he has done. Yet we who are in Christ... We are able to endure persecution because our hope is not rooted in the treasures of this world. Our hope is rooted in Christ. He is our treasure. He is our treasure. So ask yourself, is he your treasure? A reminder, number three, you Christians will receive eternal inheritance. Verse 30, here Paul pointing out Christ being our inheritance. Not just one day down the road, but today and forever, he's our inheritance. Church, heaven is not the prize. We often hear people say, hey, do you want to go to heaven when, when you die? 
Well, most everybody's going to answer yes to that. Do you want Christ? Christ is the prize. But no prize, no inheritance for those who are not God's children. This is the warning. Paul quoting Genesis chapter 21 in verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Cast out Hagar and Ishmael. Why? Because they're not children of the promise. See, if we, if we had more time, we would have seen how God did bless Ishmael in many, many ways. But despite all the blessings he received, he never received the, received the promise of salvation. Why? Because that promise reserved only for Isaac. Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the heir. He pleaded with God for Ishmael to be the heir. But that was reserved only for Isaac and the children of the promise. So what then of Ishmael and the children of Hagar? They're cast out to judgment. A reminder that no one outside the covenant of grace will receive anything from God except for the judgment that they deserve. Now what they receive in the, in the here and now can, can look like blessing, can make us envious of what they are receiving. You can imagine how Sarah must have felt when Hagar was able to conceive a son. Why, God? Like, why is she able to do this? And we've followed you. We've moved and we've done these things. Why is she able to have a child and I'm not? Why does this family seem like everything's going right for them and we're coming to church and we're doing these things and it doesn't seem like that's happening for us? We, we, we see blessings of unbelievers and family and wealth and health and all this and we're tempted to look with envy and desire and jealousy and fail to realize that none of that's going to last. It's not going to last. It, it truly is their best life now because when judgment comes, they will be cast out, which is a call for every person to repent and to believe now. Yet also a reminder to Christians that those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone will experience persecution, yes, but we will also experience the joy and the privilege of inheritance forevermore. So final point, you Christians are free in Christ. You are not slaves, you're free. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, verse 31 which means we are free to do what brings us the most joy, not only now, but 10,000 years from now. We're free to be and do what God has created us to do. As John Piper famously says, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You are free in Christ to enjoy God now and forever. Not just down the line, but now. And if that's you this morning, then we invite you to come to the table. A table and meal reserved exclusively for the free children of God who are trusting in Jesus as their only hope and life and in death and have identified themselves publicly with Christ through baptism. And if that's you this morning, come to the table. 
Come to the table and remember who you are in Christ. Remember what God did to make your salvation possible, your adoption possible as children of God. And at the same time, be reminded that this world is not our own. When we come and we take of these elements, we look and we long for a day when he will come and he will make all things new. Now, if that's not you this morning, I want you to know that it can be. And I would love nothing more than to talk with you about how, how, how you can be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to take time. I'm going to ask you to just take time to prepare your hearts to receive the, the Lord's table. And when you feel ready, you can go to one of the, the back tables in the back and grab the elements. You'll find them stacked one upon the other. Bring them back to your seat. And we'll take them together as a church family here in just a few moments. But let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for the word remember. As we are people who are prone to forget. And we need continual reminding of your promises and your blessings So forgive us of our impatience. Forgive us for our attempts to take matters into our own hands and and not wait upon your timing. And at the same time, we we thank you for for not basing your love for us on the the strength of, of our faith, but rather on the one who our faith is placed in. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace. May we live as a people who are set apart and marked by your amazing grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.